God sacrificed himself to himself to appease himself so that he could save us from himself. That is really ridiculous. Like, what? Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. We won't always agree, but we won't argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today returns to us for the third time, Keith Giles. Welcome to the show. Joey, thank you so much. It's an honor to be um, a third time guest on your podcast. It's crazy, but like I was just saying off mic, you know, I grow every time we have a conversation, which the hope is that our listeners do as well. So thank you again for giving us your time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So real quick, Keith, just give our listeners, if they are unfamiliar, if they haven't listened to your previous two episodes, just a little bit about who you are and some of the work that you do. Yeah. um, Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, my name is Keith Giles. I am the author of a um, best-selling series right now called It's the Jesus Un series of books. Um, the one we're going to talk about today is Jesus Unforsaken. Uh, it's the sixth one in this series. And the purpose of the series really is to kind of tear down a lot of man-made theologies and doctrines that I think have um, prevented us from really understanding Jesus and who he was and what he was about. Um, and so that's kind of been the goal of the series, looking at different doctrines, like the way we approach the Bible or politics or the end times or the doctrine of hell and those kinds of things. Um, I also am the host of uh, two podcasts. I co-host a podcast with some friends of mine called The Heretic Happy Hour. And that's a lot of fun. We also disagree on that one, and but we do so in, in uh, by still loving and respecting one another. And um I also have a new podcast called the Peace Catalyst Podcast, which is focused on helping Christians and Muslims find common ground and work together to bring peace in the world. Um, My wife and I have been working with Peace Catalyst International here in El Paso for about a year now. And uh, yeah, that's I guess that's kind of the short story of uh, what I've been doing lately. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And, And thanks for sharing that with us. And you had mentioned that you have a new book. It's exactly why we have you on the show. We're talking about it. Uh, The ideas around it, it's called Jesus Unforsaken. The ideas around it have to do with Jesus's death and what that death actually accomplished. You know, what happened with the crucifixion. And so for starters, if our listeners have grown up in church, obviously you've heard that Jesus was a substitute for our death. And that has a term, uh, which my pastor actually told me today is called PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Uh, Keith, what is that? Can you define what that term is for us? Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of, you're right, that's kind of what the book is primarily focused on, is critiquing this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement theory. And so basically it's it's one of several different theories of the atonement that means just trying to under make sense of what happening what happened on the cross um but penal substitutionary atonement theory has really nowadays become so prominent as uh, it's no longer an atonement theory for most people it actually is the gospel for them they basically can't communicate or think of the gospel in any way other than this penal substitutionary model. And so 
even though this model is relatively new, um, John Calvin put it together in the 1500s. Um, but for 1,500 years uh, before that, right, uh, before Calvin, uh, the church didn't think of the cross this way, and they certainly didn't think of the gospel this way. So I guess to answer your question, penal substitution communicates the uh, what happened on the cross and the gospel by basically saying, uh, and I'm just going to kind of simplify it as, as much as I can, basically assumes that God is holy and just and good and perfect and is too holy to be in the presence of sin. His posture towards us as sinners um, is that he's pr primarily full of wrath at our sinfulness and our disobedience. Um, and as a result, therefore, we are worthy of only his wrath and his destruction and judgment. And so um, Jesus kind of shows up to jump in the way take the punishment, this wrath, he suffers this wrath in our place. That's where the substitution comes in. And because now the wrath of, of God has been uh, expunged and, and sort of satisfied by the suffering of Jesus on the cross, now the Father can love us and forgive us and accept us. And, um, and I grew up being told that. I mean, this is kind of the way I was, this is how, this is how the cross was explained to me, and I didn't know there was any other way to think of that. Uh, what was going on on the cross than that. But there's a lot of problems with that theology. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to point out in the book are some of the problems with this theology and the kind of, if we really follow these assumptions and this teaching to their logical conclusions, it leads us with a very distorted view of God and of Jesus and of the cross. Hmm. Now you had mentioned that this idea didn't, originate until about 1500 with John Calvin. It does sound very Calvinistic. Um, mm -hmm. And if our, if our listeners are not familiar with that term, uh, that, that's just a framework for understanding God a little bit better, uh, originated by John Calvin. Why was, you know, was that sort of the catalyst for, for this ideology? Or, you know, like you had said, why didn't early Christians believe that this was how to see and approach God? Yeah, well, it was, yeah, well, I guess we just kind of noticed throughout church history, if you go and look at church history, um, primarily the earliest ways of understanding the cross were in the sense of that what was happening on the cross, early Christians saw it as Christ's victory. So there was the Christus victor uh, view of the cross. And simply is that Jesus, by submitting to our violence and humanity's violence and humanity's wrath, um, you know, has victory over death and sin, um, rises from the dead, he's vindicated, we're forgiven, um, you know, and, and so that they, that's how primarily they saw what was happening on the cross. Um, now, there was a guy named Anselm, and I think it was around probably 13, 1400, something like that. Um, Anselm gave us a theory of um, what was called satisfaction theory, actually it was 1095. And um, this Anselm's theory of satisfaction theory is kind of what led to Calvin's theory of penal substitution. Um, Anselm kind of saw the crucifixion through the lens of almost like a medieval um, system of like God is like a lord and we're like these peasants and we have offended him and therefore, you know, we owe him something and, and his uh, this offense against him must be satisfied. So this is where this kind of uh, where Calvin sort of 
builds on that idea. And what Calvin does is there, he slightly changes it. He was trained as a lawyer. And so he sees that through the lens of a lawyer. And then he positions everything in the sort of a courtroom drama. So God is a, is the judge. Um, we are the accused and we are guilty. And Jesus is sort of our lawyer and Satan is the accuser. And so he kind of frames it all in sort of the courtroom drama where, again, um, there is something that is owed and Jesus has to pay this debt for us. But it's more on the legal framework um, versus, of course, kind of the the Lord and, you know, um, and the peasant kind of framework. But it's just another lens of looking at it. But by doing that, by seeing it that way and framing it that way, um, again, th there's multiple atonement theories. And so, the, again, they're just theories. They're, they're just ways, they're metaphors, really, if you want to get down to it. They're just metaphors of trying to understand what's going on on the cross. And so, if we can take them as metaphors, then sure, each, each of these atonement theories on one level is saying something about what's happening on the cross. For instance, you know, if you have a, if you take a, like a ransom theory, right? So ransom theory was, was also an early uh, atonement theory. All it's trying to do is use the metaphor of us being slaves to sin and, you know, Christ paying the debt that sets us free. And if we just take it in the sense of, oh, it's a metaphor, and the bottom line is um, Christ sets us free from sin. I mean, that's that's really all we should take from it, um, from the metaphor. We're set free from sin. Okay. But the problem is, is that when you take the metaphor and push it too far, you end up, you know, it's a metaphor. So, you know, you kind of say, well, okay, well, you know, well, how much do we owe? And who do we owe it to? And, and how was it paid? And well, now you're in trouble because you've, you're pushing the metaphor too far. Um, and this is well, honestly what happens with all of these different atonement theories is when, rather than just simply taking the, the conclusion, right, Christ sets us free, we're free. That's, that's what you need to take away, the idea that we're free. Um, but, but we don't do that. We kind of go, well, hold on, you know. Um, how, what's the mechanism by which all this works? And once you, once you push it that far, now you're into a lot of problems that, um, that need to be answered when really you create more problems than you've, you've solved. Right. And it really doesn't connect well, at least I'll speak from experience. It doesn't really connect well that God loves me. You know, when that framework right. is set, it's really hard to, to just, you know, check out the the violence, so to speak, of my salvation and marry that with love. Uh, it's it's difficult. Yes. yes. No. You see, yeah. There's it, this is this is where we run into the problems with penal substitution. Um, there's one level of of penal substitution when you bring the Trinity into the equation that creates this very nonsensical. Um, uh, view of the cross, which is that God sacrificed himself to himself to appease himself so that he could save us from himself. That is really ridiculous. Like, what? What are you talking about? And then there's another level uh, as well, like as you were pointing out, when you, if we're going to hold on to the assumption that God is a God of love, well, penal substitution doesn't really 
stress that. In fact, what God, what, what penal substitution stresses is that God is primarily a God of anger and wrath. And so John 3.16 gets twisted into, instead of for God so loved the world uh, that he sent his son, you know, to, to save us, it's more that for God so hated the world and was so filled with wrath for the world and disgusted with us that Jesus showed up, took a beating in our place so that now God can love us and forgive us. Uh, penal substitution really starts to, and the more you think about it, it starts to frame the idea of God as the angry volcano God. The God is angry. We have to appease his wrath. How can we appease his wrath? Well, so we must kill something innocent. A child would be good. Perhaps a virgin would be better. Um, so if you have a virgin child we can sacrifice, um, then the blood of that virgin child sacrifice will make the angry God not angry anymore. Um, now, we would hear that if we heard, if we met some primitive tribe in Papua New Guinea or South Africa or something, and they said, this is who God is, we would say, oh, no, 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 that's not who God is. You got it all wrong. Well, but but if you're a Calvinist or if you're someone that embraces penal substitutionary atonement theory, well, no, actually, you do kind of believe in a God like that, because that that is ultimately what it's reduced to. We have a God who's angry. And, uh, you know, Jesus was his child. Jesus was a virgin. He was sinless. So Jesus was a sinless virgin child sacrifice who had to die so that this God could love us and forgive us. That just really doesn't fit with what we see if we look at um, how the Father is revealed to us in Scripture uh, and through the New Testament and through the testimony of Jesus. Now, you had mentioned the word blood. One of the things that's interesting about this entire concept is that idea of blood sacrifice. But if you do look back at the Old Testament, you had mentioned that God does forgive sins at times without blood sacrifices, at least seven times. Uh, can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. I get the first thing I think we should probably um, say right off the bat before we jump into this is that. The Bible is not of one opinion on this question of sacrifice and blood sacrifice specifically being a requirement um, for the forgiveness of sins. So it, it depends on who you ask, basically. If you go, if you ask Moses, um, then he's going to say, yes, absolutely, you know, blood, uh, blood animal sacrifices are required for God to forgive your sins. But if you go and look at other passages, you're going to see people like Isaiah and Amos and David um, and others emphatically saying, no, actually, God doesn't require that. God didn't want that. God didn't even command that. Um, and so you have a tension right away uh, in the in the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament uh, as well. The New Testament is much more emphatic that blood sacrifice is not required. But we do have in the Old Testament, as you said, I, I point out seven different examples of where God in the Old Testament forgive sins without the shedding of blood. These are things like grain offerings. Uh, sometimes you just ask for them to repent. Uh, one of the most famous ones, of course, is um, the verse in Second um, Chronicles where it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves uh, you know, and repent of their sins, then will I hear from heaven? And so again, there you have forgiveness being offered just simply by a changing of, of the heart. So there is no... Um, yeah, there is no one sort of quote-unquote biblical way of answering this question. But what we do have is a progression of understanding where we move away from. Uh, like, so again, Moses in the beginning does say, 
animal sacrifices require. But the farther away we get from Moses and the closer we get to Jesus, the more that gets modified to, no, actually, as Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Even the most famous passage, um, which always gets quoted in this conversation, at least in my experience, is Hebrews 9.22. People will say, well, hold on, Keith. No, it even says in Hebrews um, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yes, Hebrews 9.22 does say that. But if you read what it what it says in context, what it says is the law required that everything uh, be cleansed with the shedding of blood. But the point the author of Hebrews is making is that um, this is, it even affirms again in Hebrews 10, uh, Jesus actually says this. He says, behold, saying to the father, I have come to do your will. Um, but of course, he says that after saying, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings or burnt offerings or sin offerings. And so whatever God's will is that Jesus says he's come to fulfill in Hebrews 10, we can safely assume it isn't anything to do with sacrifice, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, etc. So this is the point that the author of Hebrews is making. That yes, under the law, sacrifices were required, but under Christ, um, and as Christ reveals to it, this is not the Father's desire or will. And what Jesus has come to do is to, yes, fulfill the Father's will, but that will has nothing to do with something dying so that we can be forgiven. And ideas, you know, stemming from, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It was more about, if, if I understand it correctly, it was more about appeasing the law, but also instituting a new metric with which to engage with God. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I think, again, that is the emphasis that we should be looking at is, you know, Jesus does do this where he says, I have come to fulfill the law. By the way, that's really what he's saying in that passage in Matthew, uh, when he says, I have come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Well, but then he also in the very next sentence says that that uh, the law won't pass away until all is accomplished. And so the question is, well, did he accomplish what he said he came to do? Well, he says that he did. He says, even from the cross, it is finished. So his purpose was to fulfill the law. He says that once he's done that, the law will pass away. Uh, because there are two until statements in that passage in Matthew. He says it won't pass away until all is accomplished, but that was his purpose. So he came, he fulfilled his purpose. He fulfilled the law. Now the law, as it says in Hebrews, is obsolete. Uh, as Paul says in two different places in his writings, the law is vanishing and fading away. Uh, and it's being replaced by the new and perfect law, which is the law of Christ, which is the law of loving one another as Christ has loved us. And so, yes, Jesus accomplishes this where he fulfills the requirements of the law, but um, recognizing that ultimately God's desire isn't for this blood. So um, it's sort of like, yes, we can, we can safely say Jesus has fulfilled what the law required, but he, what he came to do was something even better, which was to give us a new covenant, which, again, is not based on anything sacrificial. This is not anything that God requires or desires. What God wants and desires is a connection and a relationship with us individually. Whereas Jesus says, um, he and the father will come and make their home in us and live in us. So we have a direct, this is what the whole new covenant's about, right? This is the, this is the whole point, um, is that we can all know God intimately and directly. 
through the Holy Spirit, through an abiding in Christ as Christ abides in us. So that needs to be our shift of emphasis. It's really difficult, I will say, though, Joey, um, it's very, very difficult to kind of break the patterns that most of us have been raised in, because most of us, it's really difficult to read Scripture apart from this sort of penal substitutionary atonement filter that most of us have been given. It's, and so that's kind of the challenge that I have in the book is helping us kind of see these things through a new lens and through a different perspective. Now, you had mentioned before the idea of a courtroom, a lawsuit, the legality of the blood process for salvation, for sanctification. And I've heard it within churches as well that the sacrifice of Jesus, it was a murder of an innocent man. Did the apostles describe the crucifixion as murder? You know, thinking back to those early friends of Jesus, how did they see what happened on that cross? Yeah, that is a very, that's a very, very true. They, um, whereas we tend to frame the crucifixion as this wonderful and beautiful thing. Um, yeah, the friends of Jesus, the apostles themselves in the book of Acts, um, will call the crucifixion, the murder of an innocent man. They, they stand before the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders, uh, in Jerusalem after the crucifixion and resurrection and accuse them of murdering an innocent man. So they call it a murder. They call it an injustice. Um, where Jesus was not guilty, but yet he was sentenced to death um, by the state, um, of course, but with the approval uh, and the urging of the religious leaders of the day. So that's the way they frame it. They see it as a murder. They see it as a tragedy, as, as an injustice that's done. Um, and so this really kind of fits more, I think, with what we see, again, not from the penal substitutionary framework, but as like uh, the way Paul frames it, um, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, where Paul says that God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us. So that's not what's happening on the cross. On the cross, God is not counting our sins against us. In fact, he is not counting our sins against us. He is, he is overlooking them. He is forgiving them. He's wiping them away. And instead, Paul says, he's reconciling the world to himself. And, um, and so it's not this idea that... Um, Christ suffers under the wrath of God so that we can be loved and forgiven. Instead, it's what's happening on the cross is that Jesus submits to our wrath. Jesus submitted to the wrath of the Roman state. He submitted to the wrath of the religious leaders of the day and of the people who said crucify him. And so it's Jesus willingly submitting himself to our wrath. God now is, is submitting himself to the wrath of hum humanity. Um, to show us that he, God is not a God of anger. God is not a God of wrath. Um, that in fact, we're the ones that have the wrath and his response is father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So his response is love and forgiveness and mercy. And this is again, what Jesus is saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So again, we have to kind of rethink this whole idea of what's happening on the cross. It isn't this, Typical, as I said, volcano God idea. The God is full of wrath and anger. We have to kill something innocent so that the, the wrath of this God will be appeased. Instead, it's the God of love laying himself on our altar, submitting himself to our wrath and saying, I love you and forgive you uh, of your wrath against me. That's a very different way of thinking of it. Now, one of the things that aids in our misunderstanding and potentially misuse of Bible passages is translations, how the Bible 
words certain things, how it changes certain things. Did penal substitution get changed at all within our English and modern context of the Bible? Oh, yes, actually. Yes, it did. Uh, a, a slight little setup for you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. No, and I do point this out in the book where it's actually really shocking how the scripture over time was um, subtly and sometimes not so subtly shifted and changed to support a penal substitutionary uh, view of the scripture. Um, sometimes these changes made were not by Christians who already embraced penal substitution, but never, nevertheless, the changes were made. And because they those changes um you know, sort of lent credence to and supported the penal substitutionary doctrine, those changes were uh, allowed to persist. So one of the things, for example, is in the Old Testament. Um, this is this seems so bizarre to me. The more I even think about it, the more it kind of kind of drives me crazy. So there the earliest version of the Old Testament scriptures in the Greek, were known as the Septuagint. So this was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It was called the Septuagint. And by the way, this is the this was the version of the Hebrew scriptures that was quoted by Paul and by Jesus. And so if you've ever done this before, this has happened to me several times where you'll see Jesus quote from Isaiah or Jeremiah, one of the Old Testament prophets. And if you were to flip back in your English Bible, and read that same passage in your in your English Bible, sometimes they don't line up. It's like, well, wait a minute. Jesus seems to be quoting something, but when I go to my, when I read it in my Bible, it doesn't say quite the same thing. And here's why. Because those quotations that, that, of Jesus quoting the Old Testament or Paul quoting the Old Testament are from the Septuagint, which again, <laughs> this, is, this was uh, something that was in existence in the first century, uh, and so Jesus and Paul are quoting the Septuagint. Now, the the Masoretic text is something that came almost a thousand years after Jesus uh, and Paul, and um, it's a it's a translation done by Jewish rabbis who wanted to intentionally erase um, sort of you know, evidences of Christ of Jesus being the Christ. And so, it, when you understand that these Jewish rabbis went back and retranslated the Old Testament into the, this is what the Masoretic text is. And they did so on purpose to downgrade Jesus, to remove evidences of Jesus being the Messiah, that this is what they were wanting to accomplish. Um, now you should want to ask yourself, but so then why is that the version, the Masoretic text, that was done later by, by again, sort of hostile Jewish rabbis to, to Christian faith. Why is that the version of the Old Testament I have in my Christian English Bible today? Well, I can only say it's probably because some of those changes that were made support penal substitution. And so um, if we were to, uh, let's say, look at one again, one of the most common verses that, you know, PSA theorists love to quote is Isaiah 53, because again, it says this, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Speaking of the Messiah, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Okay, so in that Masoretic text, that's the Masoretic text that I'm quoting, Isaiah 53. Um, what it says is that it was God's will to crush Jesus. It was God who caused Jesus to suffer. And it was God who made him an offering. Well, all of those ideas 
fully support penal substitution. It's God doing the, causing the suffering. Um, it's pleasing God to crush Jesus. And the reason why is because God needs an offering uh, for sins. But um, the Septuagint, again, this was the version that existed at the time of Jesus. If you were to read it, Isaiah 53.10 in the Septuagint version, uh, it says this, the Lord is willing to cleanse him of the injury if you make a sin offering. Our soul will see long-lived offspring, and the Lord is willing to remove from him, that's Jesus, the difficulty of his soul. So now, that is radically different. In the Septuagint version uh, of Isaiah 53.10, God is, the, is cleansing Jesus of his injuries. We're the ones making him a sin offering. And, and what God is doing is removing from Jesus the suffering or the difficulty uh, or the struggle that he's facing on the cross. That is a completely different view, uh, you know, a completely different translation uh, of Isaiah 53.10. And so in the book, I go through several different, pretty significant differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text to point out just how radically the text was changed, again, about a thousand years after Jesus. And the changes are pretty significant, and they're changes that should really concern us because they're changes that obscure the real meaning of what's going on um, in the atonement and what's going on in the life of Jesus. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like it was hijacked and infused with a new or, or a similar form of law keeping. I mean, the, the way that this sounds, correct me where I'm wrong, but the way that this sounds uh, altered sounds a lot more like religion and a lot less like a loving savior. Exactly. <laughs> that's, the, that's a great way to put it. It's exactly right. So um, these kind of things are troubling, you know, um, and I think the more we realize these facts and we realize, okay, there's some shenanigans going on. Some scriptures are being altered and shifted and changed to support a certain view of the cross. Um, you know, at least I don't know about you, that, that troubles me. I would want to get back to, okay, what is, what is it really saying? What did it say before it was changed? Um, and when you do that you start realizing, oh my gosh, this is uh again, a much more beautiful gospel and a much more loving view of the father and of the son. Hmm. So if all of this is the case, Keith, how does Jesus actually then save us from our sins? I'm sure that that's a question that our listeners are listening, saying, okay, I'm with you, I'm with you. But then how does this actually happen? Right. Yeah. And then there's a, um, the sixth, in the sixth chapter of the book, of uh, my book, I go into explaining <clears throat> something called mimetic theory. A guy, a guy named Rene Girard um, kind of he started noticing and he unpacked it in a way that I think is really very, very helpful. So on one level, one of the ways that Jesus, I guess before I get into that, let me just say this. On one level, one of the ways that Jesus, quote unquote, saves us from our sins is that he just forgives us of our sins. Um, in other words, the primary response that God has to our sins is forgiveness. Uh, when we look at Jesus, and again, Jesus says, if, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. I only do what I see the Father doing. Well, if we look at Jesus then to see what the Father is like, what we see is Jesus constantly forgiving sins, always. Um, he, In fact, 
no one, no one that Jesus forgives in the New Testament, they don't repent of their sins. They don't beg him for forgiveness. He just, they walk up to him and before they even really get a word out of their mouth, he says, your sins are forgiven. And now what would you like for me to do? So he's just constantly forgiving sins all the way up until they're nailing him to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so, again, um, the, the primary thing that's happening is that God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ, not counting our sins against us, but reconciling the world to himself. So that's probably the easiest um, explanation of that. That what the way we're saved from our sins is to Jesus reveals to us that God is not counting our sins against us, that love keeps no record of wrongs, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, um, that our sins are forgiven. And the whole point of the new covenant is that, uh, and it says this, you know, when, when, when Jesus proclaims the new covenant, and we look in Jeremiah 31 and we go into Hebrews and we see the details of this new covenant, one of the primary details is, I will surely remember their sins no more. So our sins are forgiven, forgotten, um, and we are reconciled to God. So this is the atonement. We are made one with God because our sins are declared forgiven. So that's the, that's the first and simplest way. But there's a secondary way, as I mentioned, which is the what Rene Girard points out, uh, which I think is genius, is that all humanity is sort of enslaved, if you will, by our mimetic uh, desires. And this is, this gets a little complicated. I'll try to simplify it as much as I can. But um, it's it's by the way, if you've ever seen uh, like a toddler in a room full of toys alone, the toddler's playing with two or three toys until another toddler walks in and picks up a different toy. Now suddenly, the the, the first toddler says, "Mine, I want that." Well, why? He didn't care about it a second ago, but he cares about it now and he wants it desperately. Why? He wants it because the other toddler wants it, and so this is mimetic desire. Um, we see this played out in cultures throughout history. Um, you know, it's, it's the source of much of human conflict. You, you have something you desire because you desire it. I desire it. This, this is the create creates this conflict and tension between us. And quite often it can lead to war. It can lead to genocide simply because of this mimetic desires where we both desire the same things. And, uh, it's a limited resource and the only, you know, only way for me to have it is to, to kill you and, or, you know, injure you and take it from you. Um, now, if you doubt whether or not this mechanism of mimetic desire really is um, an inescapable human trait, well, we can go to the Ten Commandments. Because what the Ten Commandments do for us is point out to us that this primarily is the cause of our problems. I think six or seven of the Ten Commandments are all related to our mimetic desires. This is why it says, you know, do not covet. Do not desire your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's servants or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Why? Because that's mimetic desire. You're desiring something that belongs to someone else. That's a sin. This is one of the primary sins that the Ten Commandments is pointing out to us. But so is do not commit adultery. What is adultery? Well, I want my neighbor's wife or my neighbor's husband. And so um, this is a mimetic desire. Uh, don't steal. What is stealing? Well, you've got something and I want it, so I take it. That's mimetic desire. So many uh, murderers also like you know, the cause of much of our conflict is the source of it is this mimetic desire at its root. And so the Ten Commandments do a, one good thing in that they shine a light on the fact that one of our primary human problems is this mimetic desire that leads to, you know, lust and murder and adultery and, and these kinds of things. But what the what the Ten Commandments fail to do 
is to tell us how to not do these things. It simply says, don't do them. Stop doing it. But again, you know, this is not something we can stop. We're human beings. It's just ingrained in every single human person. We can't not have these mimetic desires. So yes, it helps to know that that we do it, but it doesn't help. To, it doesn't tell me how to stop. Jesus does. And for the first time, Jesus gives us a way out of this mimetic sort of conundrum uh, by, by doing this. He sees, Jesus says, rather than saying, don't have mimetic desires, because he, again, he knows we can't stop doing it. Jesus instead says, says this. He says, follow me, mimic my desires. Why? Because Jesus is unique in that Jesus only desires to please the Father. Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. And so if we direct, redirect our mimetic desires away from our neighbors, away from those around us, and we focus on the mimetic desires of Jesus, and we desire what he desires, now suddenly we desire to bless our neighbors, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us. Um, and so why? Because we, we're, we're mimicking the desires of Jesus. And by doing this now suddenly, we don't want to take what belongs to our neighbor. We want to we want to see what our neighbor lacks and give our neighbor something that belongs to us. Like it's, it's an absolute reversal of this process. And we see it even played out in Acts chapter two, right? When the spirit of God falls at Pentecost, you have this community of believers who who spontaneously out of love for one another are selling their property to buy food and to care for those in their community who don't have something. It's in a complete reversal of this mimetic desire. So that's a much more intricate and complicated way of pointing out one of the one of the ways that Jesus, quote unquote, saves us from our sins, because he for the first time shows us how we can escape um, our slavery, if you will, to these to the, with the sins that are outlined in the Ten Commandments and shows us a way to keep the law, to keep the commandments. And, and this is by following him and mimicking his desires, which are to please the father and result in us loving our neighbor. And that sounds really good. I mean, anybody <laughs> listening, anybody listening will obviously say, yes, that that is exactly my yoke is light and it's not burdensome. That that sounds that. Right. And yet every seven days we find ourselves in churches that would maybe quicker approach yep. and apply the idea of penal substitution because it's a little bit more cut and dry if you do then we get what do you think that the church could do to better understand this and, and then better teach this well yeah that's great i think again this is the um one of my frustrations is that modern christianity um has this fixation with and this um we continually focus on our sinfulness um and so instead of it being, instead of it being true, you know, that we would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like that should be our starting point, that Christ is the Lamb of God and he has taken away the sins of the world. That means we don't need to think about our sin. We don't need to focus on our sin. Again, the whole new covenant is your sins are forgotten and forgiven. That should be your starting point. But instead, when we go to church and when I visited churches, um, what I see is this pattern of we sing songs about our wretchedness and our worminess, um, you know, uh, how that there's no good in me. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a wretch. I'm such a worm. Um, and the emphasis is on my sin. So we, that's kind of where we start. Unfortunately, most churches start with 
you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Even if you've been following Jesus for your whole life, it doesn't matter. You come into church and the focus is on what a sinner, what a worm, how unworthy you are of the love or the forgiveness of God. Um, and then maybe if it's a particularly, you know, maybe then the end of that service, by the end of the service, you're proclaimed forgiven. Maybe you come forward at an altar call, you confess your sins, you, you get healed. Maybe you share a communion and now your sins are declared covered in the blood of the lamb. But, but you're encouraged to come back next week and repeat that same pattern over and over and over again. So come back next week. You're still, now you're a worm again. Now you're a sinner again. But by the end of the service, we'll, we'll say you're forgiven, but come back next week and do it again. But so you never, ever break out of this cycle of being basically primarily a sinner. This is who you are. But again, this is not the gospel. The, the starting point should be always you're healed, you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're loved, and we should start from there. In fact, I think we should just flip it upside down. I think most churches should start with what most, what, what, what the majority of churches end with. It should, we should come into the service singing and proclaiming, I'm healed, I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm accepted, uh, I'm, I'm a child of God, uh, I'm loved by God, and so are you, and that's how we should start our services. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time in the book focused on uh, talking about this word, what I call worm theology, because I think this worm theology, which keeps us focused on our sinfulness and our worminess and our wretchedness, really kind of makes it so that all the good things that Jesus has done for us and set us free from, we never ever actually get to enjoy any of it. And that kind of defeats the purpose. I think we should, we're, we're intended to enjoy our forgiveness and our, our new position in Christ. Really, that's mostly what Paul is emphasizing throughout most of his letters, um, is the fact that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Um, we are set free from sin. We are um, raised with him. We are seated with him and all these kinds of things. So I would love to see our churches make a shift away from that worminess that worm theology and shift us back over to our acceptance and uh, the fact that we are fully loved uh, as children of God in Christ. Those are great thoughts, Keith. Thank you. And thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Can you tell people about the book, how they can connect with it and you online? Yeah. Um, yeah, Joey, thanks. Um, so yeah, the book is Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love. Uh, it's available on Kindle and in print on Amazon right now, um, as, as will all of my books on the Jesus Un series are also available on Amazon. Um, you can uh, follow me. My, I blog on Pathios, which is just KeithGiles.com, and you can follow my blog there. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Um, would love to interact with anybody there. And I, if you want to dive deeper into this topic uh, of penal substitution, I do offer a three-week online course based on this book. In fact, all of my books, I have courses um, that are available for like 20 bucks. Uh, you can read through the book. We'll read through it together, go through the ideas one at a time. Um, there's a whole lot more resources, videos, and things that we interact with to really think through this topic and all of these different topics in a way that um, should make it much more clear for anyone hoping to really fully understand the topic. Awesome. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Joey. I appreciate it. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. <laughs>